This is the C-SPAN Radio podcast, taking a look at the people, issues, and events shaping Washington, the nation, and the world. I'm Steve Scully. Our guest this week is Stephen Wormiel, a professor of constitutional law at American University's Washington College of Law. He is also a contributor to the SCOTUS blog and spent a decade covering the Supreme Court for the Wall Street Journal. We discussed with him what to expect during the confirmation process for President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, Judge Neil Gorsuch. We also talked about the legacy and lessons of the confirmation process from Nixon to George W. Bush, including the process for Judge Robert Bork. He was rejected by the Senate in 1987. And we talked about what he thinks potentially could happen if there is another vacancy to the high court during the Trump presidency. You know, whether you go back to, to Fortis and Hainsworth and Carswell or whether you go back to Bork, um, we're, we're still on the same battlefield today. Stephen Wormiel is a professor of constitutional law at American University's Washington College of Law. He is a contributor to the SCOTUS blog. He has covered the high court for the Wall Street Journal. He's joining us on the phone here in Washington. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch and what we can expect from the Trump White House, Senate Republicans, and Senate Democrats and outside interest groups as his nomination moves through the Senate. Well, it's interesting. I've, I've been following uh, Supreme Court nominations for a long time, and it's hard to remember one that went into full combat mode uh, in in such a short period of time. Um, even before the nomination, there were conservative groups announcing that they were prepared to spend a $10 million on an advertising campaign in support of Trump's pick, even before they knew who it was. Um, liberal groups have been mobilizing for weeks trying to anticipate who would be chosen. Um, so I, I, I do think we're kind of in, in uh, full engagement here where there's going to be um, advertising on TV and newspapers and lobbying of, of senators and, um, uh, you know, like, like very much like a full political campaign over this nomination. As you know, it's been a year since the death of Associate Justice Antonin Scalia. He was referred to as a lion on the court. But when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland, Senate Republicans not even holding a hearing on his nomination, um, how raw is that for Democrats and liberal activists who thought that they had a chance at getting that seat? Oh, I think it's a it's a very open wound, and it is smarting badly um, for the Democrats. Um, uh, we've heard the the Democrats in recent days using the word "stolen seat," uh, which is pretty strong rhetoric in 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 Washington terms. Um, I I think they are really angry and uh, and and frustrated. I mean, the the difficulty with how you channel that anger and frustration is that then it almost didn't really matter who President Trump picked from his list of 21 because you were going to um, extract a pound of flesh for the 
the blocking of Merrick Garland, no matter who the choice was. So that that that's part of the dynamic, I think, that's going on here. When your students at American University School of Law ask you why Senate Republicans did not even hold a hearing, what's the politics behind that? What was the reasoning behind the decision by the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell? Well, the um, from from the standpoint of Republicans, and it's not just now, um, it, this, this is looking over a a period of, of maybe 50 years. Um, had the Democrats filled that seat and replaced Justice Scalia with uh, a, a moderate to liberal justice, it would have tipped the balance of the court um, five to four liberal. Um, I think one of my favorite statistics in the in, in this whole prolonged struggle is that the last time there was a Supreme Court that had five Democratic appointees on it was May 1969, and so um, the the you know there there was a lot at stake here uh, for the from the Republican standpoint. Um, the 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 appointment of Merrick Garland would have given a Democratic majority on the court the opportunity to really cement all of the controversial opinions that the Republicans not only don't like, but would like to overrule. So uh, from a political standpoint, it's understandable that they threw down the gauntlet and wanted to fight, uh, even if it was somewhat unprecedented. There have been, as you well know, a handful of cases since World War II in which Supreme Court nominees either withdrew their nomination or rejected by the Senate. And let me ask you about a couple of them. You mentioned in 1969 Clement Hainsworth, who was first nominated by President Richard Nixon, and a year later Harold Carswell. Both went down in defeat. Explain what happened. Well, the the politics were, I suppose, in some ways not dissimilar. Um, uh there could be, I guess, a, a which came first, the chicken or the egg question about the the politics back then. But uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, announced that when Chief Justice Earl Warren said he was going to retire, Lyndon Johnson announced that he was going to nominate his, his pal, who was then sitting on the court, Abe Fortas, to move him from an associate justice to chief justice. Um, the the Southern Democrats in the Senate and Republicans in the Senate basically punished Johnson for Fortas's cronyism with him and and also for the liberal rulings of the Warren Court and refused to confirm Fortas defeated his nomination. Um, that meant that Johnson left office with Warren still there but leaving and gave Nixon the opportunity to uh, appoint a chief justice, Warren Burger, And then Nixon had a seat to fill because Fortas subsequently resigned. Um, and, and so the, the politics were already kind of heated and fiery after the Fortas fight and the Berger nomination. Hainsworth was a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, um, and was thought to um, have some financial conflicts of interest that he hadn't been sufficiently sensitive to. And then there were also some allegations that 
perhaps his racial views were not entirely in line with uh, with desegregation at the time. So his nomination was blocked. Nixon came back with um, G. Harold Carswell, who was on the, uh, I guess, the old Fifth Circuit. He would eventually have been split into the Eleventh Circuit. Um, and and Carswell, I think it was thought was just plain unqualified uh, that that uh, he was not a very distinguished federal appeals court judge. Um, his rulings were were mediocre. His reputation was mediocre. And so the Democrats went after that one as well and succeeded in blocking it. Which led to Justice Harry Blackman, correct? Right. And when Blackman was named, it kind of went through fairly smoothly. Um, he, he had a good reputation as a solid thinker and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, no, no skeletons in the closet. The most negative thing anybody could say about him was that he was a close friend of Chief Justice Berger's, but that was not enough to interfere with his nomination. Our conversation with Professor Stephen Ramil. He teaches constitutional law at American University. He's also a contributor to the SCOTUS blog. He covered the high court for the Wall Street Journal. Let's talk about Robert Bork. 1987, nominated by President Ronald Reagan. The nomination battle that took place then continues today. How so? Um, I, I think that's right. I think, you know, whether you go back to, to Fortas and Hainsworth and Carswell or whether you go back to Bork, um, we're, we're still on the same battlefield today. Um, Bork was nominated by President Reagan in 1987. He was considered um, the, the leading conservative thinker of, of his day. He inspired a uh, a generation of um, young conservatives. You, you could argue that the very prominent and, and widespread Federalist Society today is is really the the birth child of Robert Bork in some ways, and and his thinking. Um, the 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 issue for the Democrats about Bork in 1987. I think is very close to the issue about Garland for the Republicans um, in 2016, and that is the Democrats argued adamantly that Bork would have tipped the balance of the court. He was replacing Justice Lewis Powell, who had retired and who had been very much kind of the middle of the court, often voted with with the Democratic appointees, uh, or or more liberal appointees to support abortion rights, to support affirmative action, um, had some concerns that were growing uh, over the fairness of the way the death penalty was administered and, and so on. Um, and so with Powell's retirement and the nomination of Bork, the Democrats said Bork was outside the mainstream, those listening today have heard that phrase already in the last couple of days. Um, the, the, the standard is whether the nominee is outside the mainstream. That comes from the Bork fight. The uh, the Democrats felt that Bork would tip the balance, that the court would become a five to four um, conservative court, whereas it had been a, a kind of four one four 
court very much like it like it has been in in recent times, and so the stakes were extraordinary. Um, the, um, the the moment the nomination was announced, Senator Ted Kennedy went to the floor of the Senate and gave what might be the most um, um, fiery speech about a Supreme Court nomination, certainly in in modern American history, uh, proclaiming that Robert Bork's America was a was an America of segregated lunch counters and back alley abortions and and really um, kind of laying down a baseline. Um, and it went from there. It became quite a, a large fight with television ads and newspaper ads by liberal groups opposing Bork. And I don't think that the Republicans were ready for it. I don't think they ever quite caught up to how organized and, and um, prolific in their opposition the Democrats were. Well, let me ask you about those television ads, because really that was the start of uh, powerful outside groups on both sides of the aisle, really either trying to push or sink a nomination. I I was covering the Bork nomination for the Wall Street Journal at the time, so I was in the hearing room every day, and every time there was a break, reporters would walk out into the corridor in, in one of the Senate buildings and immediately be besieged by um, liberal groups at first saying, wow, did you hear the outrageous things he said? Um, And then being similarly spun by um, White House staff and and conservative groups, you know, doesn't he seem to be doing well? Isn't he giving good answers? But what we didn't entirely know at the time was that while that was going on, the Democrats were polling. And what they were finding in their polling was that if the issue were made to be about abortion, it wouldn't resonate so greatly with with the voters. But if the issue were made to be about privacy, not specifically abortion, but Bork had written... Um, articles suggesting that it was an activist court that read the right to privacy into the Constitution. And, of course, abortion flowed from that. But when they framed the issue as being about privacy, they got a strong hit, um, uh, and strong enough that it was used to appeal to Southern Democrats who were more conservative that they could comfortably vote against Bork because their constituents were concerned about their their privacy. Um, so it, it really became, I mean, uh, you know, everything I've just described to you are the hallmarks of a classic political campaign. Professor Romil, do you think we will see that kind of um, intensity with the Gorsuch nomination? Um, I, I think we may see the intensity um, in, in the advertising and in the, the visible skirmishing. Um, I doubt that the Democrats have the ability, whether with polling or, or using strategic consultants, to really stop this nomination. I, I, I think... This is not Robert Bork. Robert Bork was a, a you know, forceful um, b- 
to to some people uh, his brilliance sounded scary he he gave um you know very very cleverly worded thoughtfully worded jurisprudential answers that made it seem like he didn't care about the the people who were implicated by the cases and the decisions I don't think that's the way Gorsuch is going to come across. He's much more mild-mannered and even-handed, and um, everybody describes him as likable and engaging. On, on, you know, on from from all different um, um, judicial philosophies and political philosophies, and so I, I don't think he's going to create that kind of image. And I don't think the votes are going to be there for the Democrats to to whip up the the level of opposition that they were able to do for Bork. Let me tap into your expertise and have you comment on two other nominees by two presidents named Bush. First, briefly, Harriet Myers, who was President George W. Bush's nomination nominee, I should say, before she withdrew. What happened, and what are the lessons from that among Senate Republicans and the conservative movement? I mean, I think in some ways that that was the, the, there were aspects of that that were like the Carswell nomination. I, I, I think that um, uh, she was widely considered to not be qualified. Um, her experience didn't really reflect enough dealing with. Um, Federal constitutional issues uh, with with federal law, no real involvement in federal courts. Um, that was one side of it, and then the other side of it was that the conservatives um, were not entirely sure that she was conservative enough. Um, I think there were some concerns that um, while Bush was promising to to name. Uh, justices in the in the mold of Thomas and Scalia that she wasn't going to be one of those. So the ironically, I think the Democrats probably would have sat back and and chuckled and said, uh, you know, if this is who you want, we'll we'll see what we can do because they they thought she might not be that bad um and and better than some of the other conservative judges that were under consideration like Edith Jones from the from Texas from the 5th circuit and it was actually some of the republican outside groups and senators who were saying well who is this person how do we know that she's the real deal which then ultimately led to the nomination and the confirmation of justice alito Right. So ultimately, Harriet Myers um, had her nomination withdrawn. Uh, I mean, it really, uh, correct me if my memory's off here, but I think it only lasted about a week. Um, it was very brief indeed. Well, let me ask you about uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. Did you cover those confirmation hearings and the second round of hearings that ensued with the salacious headlines that followed? I, I covered his actual nomination, and then I left to go teach at William and Mary for a year. But I was teaching a seminar on the Supreme Court, so we watched the hearings every day um, that fall. Both both sets of hearings. What were the uh, lessons from that? What was your own takeaway? Um, I mean, the the process to me didn't work um, for a number of different reasons. Um, it's not clear 
why the first set of hearings, which were the more traditional set, didn't uncover the concerns about sexual harassment and, and misconduct that came up in the second set of hearings. The idea that you could go through an entire confirmation hearing and and be sort of on the same plane as other hearings, you know, what what are your views about Roe versus Wade? What you know, how do you interpret the Constitution strictly or more actively and, and so on? And and that there are significant controversies lurking out there that don't come up seems to be a sad commentary on the hearing process. Um then to have the allegations about sexual misconduct leak and sort of force the second round of hearings really created a, a kind of hyper-political atmosphere that, that um, I suppose all sides did the best they could, but it, you know, you kind of started at, uh, at a fairly high level of heat before that second round of hearings even began. What do you think we potentially could expect if a Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer resigns during the Trump presidency or Justice Kennedy, a key swing vote on the court? What kind of battle would be looming with Um, those seats? War. Literally war. Um, uh, You know, to, to, to both sides, that will be the defining moment of of the future of rights that Democrats hold dear and that Republicans um, don't believe ought to exist. And and let, me, let me just be clear about the word war, not a battle. You're saying it's an all-out war. Not, not actual, not actual bombs and shooting <laughs> and weapons. And all Maybe out verbal bombs. <laughs> all-out political war. Um, um, with with. Um, Every resource, every every lawful resource. To, to your point, I'll underscore um, every lawful resource conceivably available to to both sides. Um, if Gorsuch, as as I think is likely, is seated, um, that puts us back in the situation where there are essentially four conservative justices and four liberal justices, and Justice Kennedy in the middle. Any change in the voting that involves either Justice Kennedy or one of the four liberal justices basically gives the other side, the conservative side, a solid five votes. And that means that they have the ability to overrule Roe versus Wade, to eliminate affirmative action, to um, cut way back on the separation of church and state, um, to undo some of the other um, major um, tenets of, of constitutional law that they've been attacking for decades. I mean, that would be the moment that that Republicans have been waiting for since Richard Nixon was elected president. Assuming the timeline holds, the earliest that Judge Gorsuch could be seated would be sometime this spring. So we will have gone well over a year with a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court. Has that ever happened before? There have been long vacancies, um, but but not sort of intentional vacancies.
vacancies like this. Um, I mean, the, this one is is um, inexcusable in the sense that there wasn't really any reason for, uh, other than po- pure politics, for the Republicans not to act on the Garland nomination and their insensitivity to the impact on the court and the fact that the court does not function well with with eight justices that the fact that the court doesn't like to end up in tie votes that don't really settle the legal questions definitively that that the court is trying to settle um the 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 republicans were pretty cavalier about that and I just in the last day or so I've seen it thrown back at them a little bit if I I believe I saw uh, somebody taking a stab at Ted Ted Cruz who had said uh, at one point last year that there was nothing wrong with having a court of eight justices and I saw a Democrat I think yesterday or today saying okay Ted let's just stick with eight justices now. Let me conclude with a a term that we have heard a lot in the past. I'm sure your students are asking about it as well, and will come up, especially with regard to a couple of key cases, possibly most notably Roe v. Wade, and that is the term stare decisis. Explain the term and why it comes up so often in these confirmation hearings. Sure. Stare decisis literally is is Latin for the decision stands. Um, It it is a Latin way of describing the role that precedent plays in our system, that um, courts ought not lightly to ignore and overrule precedent um, when they do, if they do it too frequently and if they do it cavalierly, it um, takes some of the credibility away from the decisions that, that courts issue. Becomes a seesaw, uh, then they don't have the force of reason and the credibility that that we are accustomed to their having uh, in order to have the respect and the authority that we need our courts to have in this country. That said, um, both liberal and conservative justices have said that precedent stare decisis is not the deciding factor um, very often. Um, uh, Justices have given different reasons for that, um, but I've heard justices articulate the idea, for example, that each justice takes an oath to uphold and, and defend the Constitution that they interpret that as meaning that they have to interpret the Constitution as they see fit. Um, you you give respect to precedent, but if you're adamantly convinced that the precedent is wrong and was wrong at the time it was decided, uh, then then you should declare your opposition to it and, and vote to overrule it. So it's a fine balance. There are very few people that would argue that stare decisis means the court should never go back on itself um, and and change its mind. There are also very few people that think the court should change its mind all the time because that would hurt its credibility.
Our conversation with author, journalist, lawyer, and professor of law, Stephen Rumiel from American University here in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for your insights. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. This has been the C-SPAN Radio podcast. You can follow C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast player. And a reminder, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as iTunes, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Thank you for listening.